Numbers 24 and 25, we're continuing here the uh, account of, of Balaam. And really this whole thing here is a parade example of imputed righteousness. It's talking about how God saw Israel. Uh, the, the classic, I suppose, is in verse, verse 5, How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, and your tents, O Israel, as valleys there spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as aloes which Yahweh has planted, as cedar trees beside the waters. Ezekiel 20, Act 7, makes it quite clear that Israel took with them the idols of Egypt. They carried not only the tabernacle of, of Yahweh, but they also carried the tabernacle of Remphan through the wilderness. They hid those idols of Egypt in their clothes, in their baggage when they came out of Egypt, and they continued worshipping them throughout the wilderness journey. And yet God imputes righteousness to Israel. And throughout these prophecies of, uh, of, of Balaam, so often, like you have in verse 5, there is the parallel between Jacob and Israel. How beautifully your tents Jacob and your tents Israel. And I think that parallel is to remind them of how Jacob was the parade example of God counting somebody righteous when they were not. And how God changed his name to something which reflected how God saw him rather than how he actually was. And so... The answer, really, to Balak's desire that Balaam should curse Israel is that, no, God sees them as righteous. And, of course, we who are in Christ are in exactly that same situation. We are counted as righteous. And verse 6, as valleys they are spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as aloes, as cedar trees, etc. The uh, repeated repetition of as, I think this is showing us that this is how God saw them. They were as this uh, to God. And in Micah 6, this incident is, uh, is commented on where God protests to Israel how much he loves them. And uh, it's in Micah 6, verses uh, 4 and 5, where Israel was sort of saying, well, does God really love us? And his answer to that is... Answer the fact. This is verse 3. God, as it were, has a, a court case against Israel. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt, Micah 6, verse 4. Uh, verse 5, my people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. That you may know the righteousness or the grace, the gracious acts of Yahweh. And you've got the same uh, idea in Hosea 9, verse 10. God found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. Notice that, like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at its first season, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the shameful thing. So then he saw them as if they were the first ripe of the fig tree, but they turn to worship Baal Peor, the, Peor, the Baal of Peor, which is exactly what uh, we just read in Numbers 25. So they didn't get it, that God counted them as righteous, and instead they turned away from that and went and worshipped idols. Now, the lesson for us, of course, is that we are in the same position. We are counted righteous, and that should demand something of us. And 
yet we don't seem to get it either that actually God sees me as if as if I am as righteous as the Lord Jesus and we shall be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy at the last day we're so caught up with our own sin and our own failure and dysfunction which of course in one sense is quite right that we should never lose sight of that but the problem is that that can obscure that they are the cloud that, that comes betwixt um, that can obscure the the glorious fact that we are counted as if we are righteous now if you totally forget your own fallibility your own frailty your own moral failure both now and in years gone by then you also won't grasp the wonder of this but as I say that can that, that sense, that quite rightful sense that we have of our own failure can lead us, unfortunately, to assume that God sees us as we see ourselves, and he doesn't. He sees us as his beloved son. This is the whole point of being brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the, the essence of it, that we are counted as him. Now it says in verse 6 of 24, at Numbers 24, that they were as aloes which Yahweh has planted. They're likened to a garden, aloes and cedar trees which God has planted. Now the idea of being planted by God is used a number of times in the Bible and the idea is that if God plants you then you are permanently planted. And it's a figure that's very often used about how God would plant his people in Canaan, in Israel, in the land, never to be removed. Uh, and if you want to, to scribble down those references, it's quite a number of them. Uh, Exodus 15:17, 2 Samuel 7 verse 10, Psalm 44 verse 2, 80 verse 8 and 15, Isaiah 5 verse 2, Jeremiah 2:21, that God God's intention was to plant Israel in that land forever, permanently. That's the, the image behind being planted by God, that i.e. permanently never to be removed. And of course the idea of Israel being as a garden planted by Yahweh, this takes you right back to Eden. And it's rightly been observed that uh, you should try to look at the, the first time that a phrase or a concept is used in the Bible to get some idea of where God is going with that idea. And that is why Genesis is such an immensely rich uh, book that guides our understanding of the rest of Scripture. And in the same way then, as it was God who planted the Garden of Eden, it's written there that God planted a garden eastward in Eden, uh, so I think you can infer that God's idea by planting Israel as a garden in the land was that this was the first step towards a potential restoration of the Garden of Eden. Now the reality at the time that Balaam was speaking was that Israel were not yet in the land. See verse 9, he's described, Israel is described as couching as a lion who's about to pounce, that is, on the, the, on the edge of the land, and Israel is seen as a couching lion or lioness who is about to pounce into the land of Canaan. But although they were there in their tents, God saw them as if they were already there in the land, planted and established. 
Now there we are in our wilderness years, gone through the Red Sea of Baptism, walking through the wilderness to come to God's kingdom. And in a sense, although we are not literally and physically in that future kingdom, we are counted by God as if we are. That we are his kingdom, that is his kingdom, the jurisdiction over which he reigns, the sphere of his reigning, his kingship, because we accept him as our king. And Jesus as our Lord in every decision and life situation that we, we come to. So then God sees you and me as if we are, as 1 Peter 2 says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation right now. Now, insofar as you can really grasp that, what it means to be in Christ, then all fear about how shall I fare at the day of judgment, what will be the final outcome of my destiny, that is sort of taken away. I know, of course, we may turn away tomorrow, but at this moment, we are in Christ, we are his kingdom. Now, he says um, a lot of things here in this chapter, which it seems to me were potentially true. But the point of chapter 25, when after all this outpouring of God's love and grace to Israel in how he saw them, they just turn around and worship Baal, then the, the lesson is that they despised this. They didn't let it sink down into them. And so, so much of what is said here about Israel's victory over their surrounding, let's say, Arab enemies was only potential. Now, verse 7 his king, and that is the king of Jacob, the king of Israel, that is Messiah, shall be higher than Agag. Now, Agag, that's the same Hebrew consonants there, the two G's, as Gog of uh, Ezekiel 38 fame. So, it seems to be implying that there will be a conflict between the king of Jacob, that is Messiah, and Gog, the outcome of which is that his kingdom, the kingdom of this Messiah figure, shall be exalted. Going through this chapter, particularly uh, starting from uh, 17, where we have the prophecy about a star coming out of Jacob, a scepter rising out of Israel, which is clearly talking about uh, Messiah, uh, it talks about all the nations that he's going to triumph over, Moab, Sheth, Edom, Seir, and so forth the Kenites, Amalek, uh, etc. Now, if you add them all up, you've got nine nations there, and then, back in verse 7, you've got this individual called Gog, or Agag, who is going to be their, their leader. So then, what was being prophesied here is that a Messiah figure would win a great victory over a confederacy of Arab nations headed up by somebody called Gog. Now, that didn't happen, because chapter 25, they turn around and sleep with the women of Moab and uh, commit uh, Baal worship, etc. They turn away, so it didn't happen. But, we know from Ezekiel 38 that this is going to happen, finally, in the last days. So what was prophesied here did not happen, because Israel didn't want it to happen. But God's word has a way of coming true in some way, even though the, the form of the fulfillment may not be as was originally envisaged. So then this will come true, but in the last days. And 
Verse 24, ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, this is Cyprus, and shall afflict Ashur or Assyria, and Eber. And he also, Ashur, that's Assyria, uh, shall come to destruction. Now, that didn't happen. Who had ships from Cyprus? This was the Philistines. The prophecy seems to be saying that the Philistines would come and destroy Assyria. And those miserable critics of the Bible will seize on this and say, there you are, that didn't happen. Assyria was not destroyed by the Philistines, it was destroyed by Babylon. And that is correct. As I see it, what this is saying is that this was part of the potential scenario that God envisaged for Israel. And that's why the chapter finishes there at the end of 25, at verse 25, and then chapter 25 begins, and oh dear, you know, they, they, uh, play pro the, they play the prostitute with the daughters of Moab, they call the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and so forth. The whole idea is set up, I think, as literature to show us this great potential that was enabled, and then Israel messed up. Now, the shame was that God saw Israel as triumphing over their enemies. Uh, back in verse 8, uh, they had the strength of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them with his arrows. And yet what happened? Did they have such great victory over the surrounding nations? No, they didn't. They worshipped their gods, and the book of Judges is full of reference to how they feared them. Ah, oh, they got chariots of iron. We can't possibly do anything. And yet, they didn't have to be like that. God had given them, when he brought them out of Egypt, the strength of a wild ox to eat up all those nations and to break their bones in pieces and pierce them with arrows. Now, why was God so pleased in chapter 25 with Phinehas when he picks up a javelin in chapter 25, verse 8, and pierces through that Midianite woman? I think he did that, Phinehas did that, because he was aware of the potential of chapter 24, verse 8, you shall pierce those nations with arrows. And so he gets up and does it. And that's why it was so pleasing to God that there at last is somebody who gets it, who sees the potential and is prepared to, uh, to live up to it. And it's the same with us, that we also have been counted righteous, we have been given the strength to inherit God's kingdom. No weapon formed against us in that sense will ever ultimately prosper. And yet does that mean that all those that are baptized that all the, the members of God's new Israel shall come to his kingdom? Sadly, it doesn't. Simply because we don't allow ourselves to get it, that this tremendous potential is there. You see that the whole sadness of when the spies come to look, look around the land and they say, oh no, we can't possibly do this, their cities are walled up to heaven, and then we get a unique insight behind those walls in the story of Rahab where she says, oh, we're scared stiff of you, we've got no spirit left to fight you, we're absolutely quaking because of you, and yet all they saw was the big walls, that no, we can't possibly do anything with these guys, they're far too strong for us, they're going to eat us up. That's what they said, they're going to eat us up. Whereas here, God has said, you will eat them up. And so it is with all the barriers that we think come between us and inheriting God's kingdom, that really, 
there is nothing there. There's no one at home. Although it, of course, visually appears so impressive. Now, verse 13. Balaam says rather lamely, or verse 12, Well, look, didn't uh, I tell you right at the start, Balak, if you would give me your house full of silver and gold, I can't, and you could almost add, unfortunately, uh, go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad of my own mind. I have to say what Yahweh says. Clearly enough, as we're told elsewhere in Scripture, Balaam loved the reward of divination. He loved this silver and gold. He desperately wanted to curse Israel. It's just that the Spirit of God kept coming upon him and making him say things he didn't really want to say. So, clearly enough, he wanted to curse Israel. There's a couple of passages which speak as if he actually prayed to God... Uh, to curse Israel. Now, it's not recorded here in Numbers, but let's just uh, have a look at them. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. Yahweh your God would not listen to Balaam, but instead your God turned the curse into a blessing to you, because Yahweh your God loved you. So, Balaam, it says there, uh, spoke to God to curse them, but Yahweh would not listen to him but he turned the curse into a blessing. That's not actually recorded in Numbers. Uh, going on to the end of Joshua 24, verse 10. Joshua 24, verse 10. I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he blessed you still. Again, it's pretty clear that he did ask God to curse Israel. Nehemiah 13, verse 2 uh, says the same. Now, why is it not recorded that Balaam actually prayed this to God? Well, I think he maybe didn't actually pray it. But clearly in his own mind, he thought of that silver and gold, and he loved it. As Jude says, uh, he, he really wanted it, but he knew that he, he couldn't have it because he couldn't sort of spit out the words to, to curse Israel. So I think that his unspoken desire was read by God as a prayer. And this is not the only time you get this. I mean, you, quite often in the Psalms, uh, David seems to talk about his innermost desires as being his prayer. Then you have that case in Romans where Paul says that Elijah made intercession to God against Israel. And it's framed, oddly enough, in the same language as Balaam, uh, making intercession to God against Israel. Uh, but actually there is no record, no record at all, that Elijah actually prayed against Israel. He simply moaned and groaned that, oh, they've turned away from you, God, I alone am left faithful. Almost sort of nudging God to say, why don't you do with me what you wanted to do with Moses and make of me a great nation and just get rid of this lot. But he didn't actually say that. My point is that his unexpressed desires were read by God as prayer. Now, that is very comforting, because in talking to people, especially newly baptized people, about how they're getting on in their spiritual life, very often people say they have a problem with prayer. And the problem is, I think, that we have the idea that prayer involves finding a nice form of words that prayer is verbalization, and by that I mean putting things into words. Uh, 
But the simple fact is that some people can verbalise better than others. Some people can just put things in words better. And as the internet generation goes on and people spend their lives sitting behind computer screens and mobile phones and various devices, uh, the importance of words and um, your word choice becomes more and more important. And that leaves some people behind. Some people from the, you know, engineering mindset just aren't into words. Other people are. But that doesn't mean that you're not a good prayerful person because you can't find the right words. So many times I've heard this to the effect that, well, prayer, yeah, I never know what to say. I can't find the right words. I shut my eyes and I don't quite know what to say. And that is, I think, why in the Orthodox churches that is the idea of reading a prayer. Oh, you don't know how to pray? Look here, Sonny. Here's a beautifully written prayer with flowery language written by some guy. Uh, just read that out. And people look at it and think, oh, yeah, beautiful words. Oh, yeah, I'll say that. But <clears throat> that is not actually the essence of prayer. The essence of prayer is how you feel. It's not as if you have certain feelings, but because you don't actually say a prayer about them, therefore God kind of like doesn't, doesn't pay attention to them or doesn't see them. No, God does because he sees your thoughts as your prayer. Now, oddly enough, in chapter 25, you have another example of this with Phinehas. Um, we know that uh, he uh, was jealous and zealous for God, and he went and, uh, and killed this, this guy and uh, this uh, Midianite woman. And that is commented upon in Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 30, Phinehas executed judgment, and the plague was stayed. Psalm 106, 30. But the Hebrew there for executed judgment is the same word that's more usually translated to pray or entreat. Phinehas prayed, or Phinehas entreated, and the plague was stayed. But there's nothing actually written here in Numbers 25 about Phinehas praying. All we read about is his actions. So, I think that uh, we can safely say then that Phinehas was seen as if, as if he had uh, prayed to God. And yet, um, he didn't actually pray. But it was interpreted that way. And that's, again, as I say, another example of where prayer is more than words. Prayer is the essence of who you are. And the fact you don't pray about something does not mean that God doesn't kind of read that desire of yours. And that works positively and negatively. The bad things we think about others, like Elijah did about Israel, like Balaam did about Israel, are still read by God as prayers to him. And more comfortingly, that inner desire, that inner love of God, which I believe is in the hearts of all of you, because I, I can't you know, say that you don't love God. I'm sure that you do. I, I genuinely mean that. I'm not just being a positivist for the sake of it. That genuine love of God that is right down there in your heart, God sees that, and he reads that as a prayer. Now, getting back to uh, Numbers 24, um, verse 17, the star, 
that is to come out of Jacob and the scepter that rises out of Israel. When the wise men said, we saw the star of the king of Israel and were following it. Well, I think they're pretty clearly alluding to this. So the star that came out of Jacob just on that basis alone is the Lord Jesus, ultimately the Messiah. I just want to note that he comes out of Jacob and he is a scepter that rises out of Israel. And that I just in passing um, would, would note that, that is yet another evidence of the humanity of the Lord Jesus, that he came out of Jacob and, and Israel. So verse 18, Edom shall be a possession, Seir, his enemies, also shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Now, going through the later uh, Old Testament, you come across a lot of references to Seir and Edom and different battles against them, and how they kept on revolting against Israel, etc. Just to go through a few of them under Solomon, 1 Kings 11:14 under Jordan, 2 Kings uh, 8.20 under Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28.17, during the Babylonian invasion, Ezekiel 35.15, Obadiah 10 and 13. So clearly Israel did not live up to that potential. They didn't do valiantly against these people. They could have done, but they didn't. And this is just so tragic. And wasted potential is always so tragic. It's why we, we lament the death of people who die young. Uh, we think of what could have been. And God, in that sense, becomes a tragic figure because so much was made potential for him. You take a young couple in love with each other and then one of them falls out of love with the other one and the other one is there in tears thinking it could have been like this, we could have had children, we could have lived in such a house, we could have uh, done this together, we could have done that, but it's all not going to happen. The sadness and the tragedy is always because of the sense of what might have been. And we all uh, have that as the basis of our own sadness over so many issues, what might have been. And yet think about God and think about his feelings, not just about Israel, but about you that so much is potentially possible that we just don't live up to. So then we come to the end of chapter 24, and we read, verse 25, that Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place. It's as if that's the end of the story, but we know it's not the end of the story. Balaam figured that if Israel sinned against their God, then all these prophecies of blessing and victory wouldn't come true. So he understood prophecy correctly. He understood it as potential, as conditional. And so he advises Balak to tempt Israel to commit fornication with their gods so that these prophecies wouldn't come true. And that is uh, alluded to really in Numbers 31, uh, verse 16. Balaam, um, uh, sorry, talking about um, <clears throat> the Moabites, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against Yahweh. So then Balaam did actually tell the Moabites to go and, uh, and do this, this evil plan, so that all these blessings would not actually come true. And this again is, is picked up in Revelation, in, in Revelation chapter 2, um, verse, verse 14. Where we read there about those who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So then Balaam told or taught Balak to do this. So he didn't just immediately go home. He did actually have a word with Balak. And yet, in 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 11, Balaam is seen as the, uh, the prototypical false teacher within Israel. That in the same way as there were false prophets in the early church advising or teaching to worship idols and commit fornication, so they had their basis in Balaam. So I think that Balaam maybe went into the camp of Israel and encouraged them to do this. And if he did that, that would explain on a human level how Moses came to have the account of the prophecies of Balaam. That Balaam would have come to Moses and Israel and said, you know what, I made these prophecies about you, and here they are. Now, of course... Moses, under inspiration, could have got that material from anywhere he, 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 God saw necessary. Uh, but that would sort of make human sense if that's what happened. So then, that's what uh, Balaam did, it seems to me. He advised Balak to do this evil plan, to stop the blessings coming true, and he taught Israel to do the same. And it worked, unfortunately. But my point is that prophecies which appear to be unconditional, like, you know, you read chapter 24, it all seems so unconditional, these prophecies of success, that actually these were conditional. And so chapter 25, verse 2, the tragedy happens, and Israel bow down to their gods. So sad, because chapter 24, verse 7, his king shall be higher than Agag. And verse 18, Israel shall do valiantly. Israel shall have dominion. Israel shall be above. But instead they bowed down. And <clears throat> as I say, the whole story here is about wasted potential. And I come back to the point I started with, that we are in Christ, and we are counted by God as if we are his son. This is the whole point of being in Christ. This is the whole meaning attached to it. And let's not make the mistake of Israel. Let's get it and go forward in that strength.